This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. To the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Uh, it's page 787 in the Pew Bibles. Uh, one of the minor prophets, uh, so called because of length, not because of importance. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. We're looking this morning at Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Habakkuk 3, verses 17 through 19. Hear the word of the Lord. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Thanks to the Lord for his holy word. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we take up a study of this portion of the Holy Scriptures, we pray for the illumination of your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that your word uh, would be uh, light to us, that your word would be food to our souls, and that your word, Lord, would be an encouragement and a strength, because it is your word, because it comes from you, our true and living God, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As the year 2008 drew to a close, there were the inevitable lists ranking the top news stories of the year. And as you look at those lists, it seems that a pattern quickly developed. At least in the list that I observed, it seemed like the number one news item, according to polls or the opinions of those who write the news stories, that the number one news story of the year was the election of Barack Obama, the United States' first African-American president. But following quickly on the heels of that story was the economic collapse of 2008, uh, specifically seen in the fall of 2008. And certainly that is a story that's powerful because it has affected all of us, some of us quite directly in terms of loss of employment, uh, all of us indirectly, one way or another, uh, the economic downturn has been a very real Factor, not just a new story, but a real presence in our lives. I saw a poll just recently online asking, do you anticipate that 2009 will be better 
for you or worse than 2008. And the result of that poll so far was that 75% of the people thought 2009 would be a better year for them, uh, particularly economically, than 2008 had been. That's an interesting phenomenon that probably pops up for a couple of reasons. One, I think many people are hoping that the worst of the economic damage has already taken place, and there's really nowhere to go but up. I think also something taking place there is the fact that as people move from one year to the next, there is an innate optimism that the year to come will be better than the year that has just passed, especially when the year that has just passed ended the way 2008 did economically. So as we move from one year to the next, there is uh, an optimism that the coming year will hold good things for us. However, even as we move into a new year, there is a sense of uncertainty, perhaps even uneasiness. Uh, Economically, we're certainly not out of the woods yet. Politically, uh, certainly many people are concerned what the presidency of Barack Obama will bring. And militarily, the world is still a dangerous place, even as Israeli tanks cross the border into Gaza. We're reminded that the world can be a dangerous place. And so as we enter a new year, there is optimism, but there is also certainly cause for uneasiness. Well, Habakkuk knew what it was like to face the prospect of not just some unsettling times, but some downright dangerous times, some very scary times on the horizon. If you're familiar with this short book, just three chapters, uh, I encourage you, especially if you've never read through it, to read through it this afternoon. Just three chapters wouldn't take long. You could check off your resolution to read through the whole Bible, a whole book of the Bible, read in one day. But Habakkuk, uh, in chapter 1, is struggling with the fact that in Judah, the, the leadership is corrupt. Uh, it is crooked. There's unrighteousness in high places, and it troubles Habakkuk. And he asks the Lord, how long, Lord, will you let this circumstance continue? Well, the Lord answers that he is going to bring uh, judgment, chastening on Judah, and he's going to do so by means of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. Well, that really sets Habakkuk off his hinges because the Babylonians are even more wicked, even more corrupt, even more defiled than Judah, than Jerusalem. And and, and Habakkuk is greatly troubled by this. Lord, how can you do this? How can you take this, this even more unrighteous society, this more ungodly nation, to punish Judah? And Habakkuk struggles with that. And in fact, the third chapter is his prayer as he brings us before the Lord and wrestles through this whole question of the righteousness of God and how God deals with sinful people here in this world. But Habakkuk does come to a place of resolution. In fact, he comes at the end of the book to a place of peace. It wasn't easy if we look the verse before our text, verse 16 Habakkuk says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. 
It's frightening stuff. And yet he can reach the place that we just read. He says, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Because the Lord has said, your nation, Habakkuk, will be invaded. With all that that entails, the civil disruption, destruction to the cities, ravaging of the land, and all that that means. And Habakkuk knows what that means. And yet he's able to arrive at a place where he is not just at peace, but where there is joy in his heart before the Lord. How does he arrive there? What can we learn from Habakkuk? As we've just been through a difficult year, and especially a few months, as we face this year of uncertainties, how is it possible to have the same kind of joy that Habakkuk had, even though his circumstances were even more dire than our own, or certainly would be in the near future? Well, the lesson that Habakkuk learned that we need to learn is this. Joy is found not in the circumstances, but in the Lord. Joy is found not in our circumstances, but in the Lord. And our text basically breaks up into those two halves. First of all, our joy is not found in the circumstances of our lives. Now, far too many people think in those terms. That Generally, that's the way the world thinks. We're happy because our circumstances are good. We have joy because everything's going the way we want. Now, we need to be careful that we distinguish between ease and comfort and joy. A person can have ease, a person can have comfort, a person can have pleasure, and yet have no joy. There are plenty of people who live that way. Their lives are characterized by ease and comfort. Pleasures abound. Whatever they want to do, they're able to do. And yet there's no bedrock of joy in their lives on which they stand. In fact, there's a great sense of unease, a sense of emptiness at the end of the day, despite all the ease and the comfort and the pleasures they might enjoy in their lives. And on the other hand, a person can have very little of ease, very little of comfort, very little in the way of worldly pleasures and enjoyments, and yet have a deep and abiding joy in their heart, a joy that's more than a giddy happiness, but a sense that all is right and all will be right because the Lord reigns. But it's not based on our circumstances, that sense of joy. It's based in the Lord. Well, let's look at the circumstances as Habakkuk describes them in verse 17. He just goes through and lists these various aspects of productivity in his day, particularly agricultural productivity and in terms of the husbandry of animals. Well, let's look at what he says. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, produce of the olive, Fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Everywhere, everywhere you turn, it's empty. There's nothing there. Some have tried to group these in two groups of three each. We could look at it that way. The fig tree, fruit on the vines, produce of the olives, as being the luxuries of life. To enjoy the figs, to enjoy good fruit, to enjoy the produce of the olive. And olive oil uh, were, were the, the good things in life. Uh, but everywhere you turn, the things that produce those are barren. They're empty. There's nothing there. The tree doesn't blossom. The vines produce no fruit. Uh, the, the olives don't show up. But then he goes on to the second group of three. The fields yield no food. 
The flock be cut off from the fold. There be no herd in the stalls. The field, of course, the grain for making bread, the staple of their diet. Uh, the flock uh, for producing meat, possibly milk. The herd, cattle for, for, for meat. The basics, grain and milk and meat. Uh, the things that produce those are not producing. They're not there. So whether you want to break it up into the luxuries of life, the necessities of life, or just look at them as a whole, the point is there's nothing to be had. The point is there's, there's no food. The, the basics and even the necessities are not there. To put it in modern-day terms, it would be like discovering the pantry at your home is empty, so you go to the grocery store and you go down shelf after shelf, aisle after aisle, and the shelves are empty. There's nothing there to be had. There's nothing there to purchase. And there's no delivery truck scheduled any time soon. That's the circumstances. That's the kind of thing that Habakkuk is describing here. The circumstances are quite bleak. The circumstances are quite unpromising and, in fact, are rather dire. And we know a little what that feels like as you open your statement on your IRA and it continues to drop and drop and investments fall and all of these things in our time that we see, the credit crisis, home values dropping, the bailouts and layoffs and the shrinking economy. Uh, you could, if you wanted to, take that and kind of put it into, uh, into these terms. You know, that the, the IRA should not blossom, uh, nor a job be on the vine. Uh, it's exactly the kind of thing that Habakkuk is describing here. And yet it's not the circumstances. It can't be. There's no good circumstances here. Uh, earlier we read of um, Paul's letter, uh, and he describes his own joy, learning how to, how to deal with abundance. And sometimes that's not as easy as one might think but also learning how to deal with need, with want. And again, that can be difficult to deal with. But in either way, to have joy before the Lord. But what was the circumstance? The whole letter of Philippians just drips with the word joy and rejoice and rejoicing over and over. Where was Paul when he wrote it? In prison. Now we read earlier, David, Psalm 16, the lines, the boundary lines, probably what he's referring to, have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Things were good for David. And yet ultimately he's pointing toward the Lord. Things were looking kind of grim for Paul. He was in a Roman prison. And yet his heart was the same as David's. It was rejoicing. Why? Because they discovered that joy is found not in the circumstances, just as Habakkuk did as he wrestled through God's dealing with his people, prospect of great loss, dire circumstances. That's not where our joy is to be found. And we need to learn that lesson as God's people. Because life is always going to have something that's not right to it. Even when things are going pretty well, there's always going to be something there that irritates, that provokes, that discourages, that depresses, that gets you down, that bothers you, because that's just life in this fallen world. Even when everything is generally going well, but especially when things are not going well at all, that we need to remember that our joy is not found in the circumstances. It's found, rather, 
in the Lord. And that's where we come to verses uh, 18 and 19. Notice the word in verse 18, yet. Change of direction. Yes, although all of this happens, as he says, the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail. All of these things, yet, in spite of all of that, acknowledging that, recognizing the reality of these bad circumstances, yet, he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. In spite of these things, he says, I will rejoice. Now, he's been, he's been grumbling. The temptation is to complain. Why, God? Why me? Why is it like this? He says, no. In spite of these things, I will rejoice in the Lord. For one reason, because of who God is. Notice what he says. I will rejoice in the Lord. Now, we've covered this before, but helpful to remind you that when you see the word Lord in most English translations, and it's written as it is here in the ESV in small capital letters, it's indicating that the Hebrew word there is the name for God, Yahweh, uh, which was the name that God gave to Moses in Exodus 3, when Moses asks the Lord in the burning bush, who shall I say sent me? And he says, I am who I am, uh, which is what most scholars think the name Yahweh indicates. It has to do with I am, indicating God's being. But it's also referred to as God's covenant name. It's the name that God revealed of himself, the name by which he was to be Known. He is the covenant God of his people. He is the God who is in this inviolable covenant with his people that they will be his people and he will be their God. So we rejoice in the Lord because of who he is. He is our covenant God. He has pledged himself to our eternal and ultimate well-being. And he has done everything necessary in Christ to secure our eternal well-being. And as Paul argues in Romans 8, can we not also trust him then to provide for us every temporal thing that we need in Christ Jesus? In other words, if the Lord has provided for what is ultimate, for the big need that we have, to be right with him, to have eternal life instead of eternal death in hell, then we can trust him to provide for the lesser things. Now the problem is it's the lesser things that seem so immediate and so pressing, then eternal life seems like something vague far out in the distance. And yet that is the greater need and the greater thing that God has provided. So the Lord is our covenant God. He is Yahweh. He is the one who has pledged himself to be our God and to take care of us. So because of who God is, the Lord, because of who God is, in verse 18, again, I will take God in the joy or take joy in the God of my salvation. He is the God who has saved us. He is the God who sent the Lord Jesus to be our savior to redeem us from our sin, to be the atonement for our rebellion against God. Again, because of who he is as the Lord, because of who he is as our Savior, because of who he is, verse 19, the Lord, with the regular small letters, Adonai, our master, our king, our ruler, the Lord, the one who rules over us. Because he is the Lord. He is the sovereign one who reigns over the events of our lives. And so uh, as, as Habakkuk thinks this thing through, 
He's saying, I'll rejoice in God because he's our covenant Lord. I will take joy in him because he is the God of salvation. He is the God who redeems. Of course, in Habakkuk's terms, looking probably at the Exodus and how God brought them out to be his own people. And from a New Testament, New Covenant perspective, we look at it in terms of what Christ has done, accomplishing our salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength because of who he is as the one who gives us grace, who gives us strength in the face of circumstances, to turn to him and to rejoice in him. So we rejoice in the Lord because of who he is, but we also rejoice in the Lord because we purpose to do so, because of who he is. Look at, look at the words here, verse 18. Habakkuk says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Now, that's a future. I think that's not so much prediction, though, as resolution. It's not as though Habakkuk's just saying, yes, I know at some point in the future I will rejoice in the Lord. He is saying, I will rejoice. Yet, in spite of these things, I will rejoice in the Lord. It is an act of the will. He purposes to do so. It is a choice he makes. Again, not so much a prediction as a resolution. It's an act of the will. And there's something of defiance in that statement, isn't there? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Whatever life might bring in God's providence, I will nevertheless, despite temptation to the contrary, I will rejoice in the Lord. There's something of fight in those words. And it is true in the Christian life that sometimes we do have to fight for our joy in the Lord and refuse to capitulate, refuse to give in the temptation to grumble, to become despondent, or to despair that God cares about us at all. But that's what we see with Habakkuk. Yet I will rejoice. Yet I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. So this is what, who God is, but notice also what God does. Verse 19, he makes my feet like deer's. Okay, what does that mean? We have little hooves, right? No. Well, what Habakkuk is talking about there, when he says he makes my feet like the deer's, that is an image of sure-footedness. In other words, we're not going to slip. We're not going to fall. And that is also an important biblical imagery. One of the most well-known, famous, or infamous depending on one's point of view, sermons ever preached was Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he preached that on the text. His text for that sermon was Deuteronomy uh, 32, verse 35. And in fact, just a phrase in the King James of that verse. The, the, The phrase was, that he preached this whole sermon on, the phrase was, In due time their foot shall slip. The feet of the the wicked. In due time, their foot shall slip. That's an important biblical imagery for downfall, for calamity, or in that case, the downfall under the judgment of God. Now, every one of you has experienced what it's like to slip and fall, where you've stepped on a wet floor or stepped on a, a patch of ice, and suddenly you feel your foot slip or slide, and you may catch yourself, you may not. Your feet may go up in the air and you hit the, hit the ground, hit the floor. It's always a startling and sudden and sometimes painful event. 
Well, that was the imagery that that um, that Edwards used. That, that it's as if the Lord is dangling them by a spider web over the pit of hell, and at any time they might fall into hell. And the only thing that kept them from falling into hell was the mere good pleasure of an incensed God. That 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 judgment could come suddenly, quickly, at any time. They could die and fall into the fires of hell. Well, that imagery occurs not just there. It occurs in other places in the scriptures as well. Uh, psalm 73, a well-known psalm, Asaph, who struggles with the apparent suffering of the godly and the apparent prosperity of the wicked. He says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Right? That's, that's the creed. That's the statement. God is good to those who are pure in heart. But he says, as for me... My feet had almost stumbled. My step had almost, my feet had almost slipped. My steps had almost stumbled because I looked at the wicked and I envied their prosperity. You know, I know the truth that God is supposed to reward the godly, but the way I see it as I look out there is that it appears that the righteous are suffering, the, the wicked are prospering, and he said it was almost as though my feet slipped or my steps stumbled. I was about to get tripped up over this apparent discrepancy. And he wrestles through that and resolves it in the end in Psalm 73. He says, Then I entered the sanctuary of God, and I saw the end of the wicked, that their prosperity was merely apparent, that their day of judgment and suffering was in fact coming. But again, that imagery of calamity, of of getting tripped up. Well, when we come back to this passage... He says, he makes my feet like the deers, sure-footed, able to scrabble over the rocks without slipping, able to travel over rough places without stumbling and falling, sure-footed. That's the image here. And so you take it with that biblical idea of stumbling or your foot slipping as a way of, of either stumbling into uh, unfaithfulness to God or falling into the, the judgment of God. And the opposite is here. Instead of slipping feet, stumbling steps, he makes my feet like the deer's. I don't miss a step. Every, every step is sure-footed. And not only that, he says, he makes me, like that deer, tread on my high places. Now, again, some biblical imagery here. The Bible uses the image of the valley as being the place of fear, the place of despair. Yea, though I walk through, what? The valley of the shadow of death. Uh, opposite that is the high places. And sometimes even the high places were used as pagan worship sites. But the, the point here is that the high places are the place of victory, the place of joy, the place of celebration, the place of triumph, not down in the valley, but on the mountaintop, the mountaintop experience. He makes me tread on my high places. Sure-footed, we're able to walk on the heights, the victory that God gives us, which in this case is joy in the Lord regardless of the circumstances. Now, these things certainly apply temporally to our lives here in this world. But you see, their ultimate fulfillment is in this, that even in for the Christian in Christ, even in the ultimate deprivation, not just the loss of the fig tree produce, olives, grain, milk, meat, but in deprivation of life itself. Because of the crucified and resurrected Christ, 
Our feet will be like the deer's. We will not slip into the pit of hell, but we will tread on the high places of glory, the high place even of heaven itself. So this passage certainly applies in this life as we enter a new year, but it also applies even as we look at the grave and beyond the grave, that even in that ultimate deprivation of life itself, our feet will not slip. They'll be like the deer's, and the Lord will make, make us to tread in Christ on the high places of heaven itself. Sometimes the problem is we're just looking at the wrong place, looking at the wrong things. Like Peter, when uh, he got out of the boat and began to walk on the water toward Jesus and was soon distracted by the waves and the wind blowing and crashing all about him and began to sink, sometimes we're just looking at the wrong things. Because you see, Habakkuk learned the lesson that you and I need to know that the key to resolute joy is to look not at the circumstances, but at the Lord. The Lord is the God of our salvation. He is our strength. So don't look at the waves. Don't look at the wind blowing. But keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this passage And Lord, even though to us in many ways it's words on a page, to Habakkuk the prospect of deprivation and desperate circumstances was very real. And yet, Father, we find how he was able to turn from that and to rejoice in you. Father, we pray that in these difficult times, in the uncertainty of what this year holds, that we would not be fixated on the headlines, and on the bottom line, but that our eyes would be fixed on you, our risen and glorified Lord Jesus. We pray that we would rejoice in you, that we would take joy in you, the God of our salvation, that you, O God, would be our strength and our joy in 2009. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.